Chapter One of Southern Arabia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Southern Arabia by James and Mabel Bent. Chapter One Manama and Maharic. The first Arabian journey that we undertook was in 1889 when we visited the islands of Bahrain in the Persian Gulf. We were attracted by stories of mysterious mounds, and we proposed to see what we could find inside them, hoping, as turned out to be the fact, that we should discover traces of Phoenician remains. The search for traces of an old world takes an excavator now and again into strange corners of the new. Out of the ground he may extract treasures, or he may not. That is not our point here. Out of the inhabitants and their strange ways, he is sure, whether he likes it or not, to extract a great deal. And it is with this branch of an excavator's life we are now going to deal. We thought we were on the track of Phoenician remains, and our interest in our work was like the fingers of an aneroid, subject to sudden changes. But at the same time we had perpetually around us a quaint, unknown world of the present more pleasing to most people than anything pertaining to the past. The group of islands known as Bahrain, dual form of Bahr, i.e. two seas, lies in a bay of the same name in the Persian Gulf, about twenty miles off the coast of El Hasa in Arabia. Bahrain is really the name of the largest of the islands, which is twenty-seven miles long by ten wide. The second in point of size is Maharic which lies north of Bahrain, and is separated from it by a strait of horseshoe form, five miles in length, and in a few places as much as a mile wide, but for the greater part half a mile. The rest of the group are mere rocks, Sitra, four miles long, with a village on it of the same name, Nebisalah, Saya, Chaseifa, and to the east of Maharic, Arad, with a palm grove and a large double Portuguese fort, an island or peninsula according to the state of the tide. It was no use embarking on a steamer which would take us direct from England to our destination, owing to the complete uncertainty of the time when we should arrive, so we planned out our way via Karachi and Mascot. Then we had to go right up to Boucher, and again change steamers there, for the boats going up the Gulf would not touch at Bahrain. At Boucher we engaged five Persians to act as servants, interpreter, and overseers over the workmen whom we should employ in excavating. We had as our personal servant and interpreter combined a very dirty Haji Abdullah, half Persian, half Arab. He was the best to be obtained, and his English was decidedly faulty. He always said mules for meals, foals for fowls, and anyone who heard him say, what time you eat your mules to-day, Sahib? Or, I have boiled two foals for dinner. Or, Mim Sahib, now I go in bazaar to buy our provisions of grub. Or, what place I give you your grub, Mim Sahib, would have been surprised. He had been a great deal on our men of war. He also took a present of horses from the Sultan of Muscat to the Queen, so that he could boast, I've been to home, and alluded to his stay in England as, when I was in home. Abdullah always says chuck and never throw, and people unused to him would not take in that those peacock no good, carboys much better, referred to pickaxes and crowbars. 
he used to come to the diggings and say a couple of shakes come here in camp sahib i am standing them some coffee shall i stand them some mixed biscuits too i must say i pity foreigners who have to trust to interpreters whose only european language is such english as this with the whole of our party we embarked on the steamer which took us to bahrain or rather as close as it could approach for owing to the shallowness of the sea while still far from shore we were placed in a bagala in which we sailed for about twenty minutes then when a smaller boat had conveyed us as near to the dry land as possible we were in mid-ocean transferred bag and baggage to asses those lovely white asses of bahrain with tails and manes dyed yellow with henna and grotesque patterns illuminating their flanks we had no reins or stirrups and as the asses though more intelligent than our own will not infrequently show obstinacy in the water the rider firmly grasping his pommel reaches with thankfulness the slimy oozy beach of bahrain manama is the name of the town at which you land it is the commercial capital of the islands just a streak of white houses and bamboo huts extending about a mile and a half along the shore a few mosques with low minarets may be seen having stone steps up one side by which the priest ascends for the call to prayer these mosques and the towers of the richer pearl merchants show some decided architectural features having arches of the saracenic order with fretwork of plaster and quaint stucco patterns on landing we were at once surrounded by a jabbering crowd of negro slaves and stately arabs with long flowing robes and twisted camel hair cords a call around their heads our home while in the town was one of the best of the battlemented towers and consisted of a room sixteen feet square on a stone platform it had twenty-six windows with no glass in them but pretty lattice of plaster our wooden lock was highly decorated and we had a wooden key to close our door which pleased us much even though we were close upon the tropics we found our abode chilly enough after sunset and our nights were rendered hideous firstly by the barking of dogs secondly by cocks which crowed at an inordinately early hour and thirdly by pious musclemans hard at work praying before the sun rose from our elevated position we could look down into a sea of bamboo huts the habitations of the pearl fishers neat enough abodes with courtyards paved with helix shells in these courtyards stood quaint large water jars which women filled from goatskins carried on their shoulders from the wells wobbling when full like live headless animals and cradles like hen coops for their babies they were a merry idle lot of folk just then for it was not their season of work perpetually playing games of which tip-jack and top-spinning appeared the favorite for both young and old seemed to be their chief occupation staid arabs with turbans and long flowing robes spinning tops formed a side of which we never tired the spinning tops are made out of whelk shells which i really believe must have been the original pattern from which our domestic toy was made the door-posts of their huts are often made of whale's jaws a great traffic is done in sharks the cases for their swords and daggers are all of shagreen the gulf well deserves the name given to it by ptolemy of the ichthyophagorum sinus 
walking through the bazaars one is much struck by the quaint huge iron locks some of them with keys nearly two feet long and ingeniously opened by pressure of a spring in the commoner houses the locks and keys are all of wood in the bazaars too you may find that queer alhasa money called tawila or long bits short bars of copper doubled back and compressed together with a few characters indicating the prince who struck them the coffee pots of bahrain are quite a specialty also coming from el hasa which appears to be the centre of art in this part of arabia with their long beak-like spouts and concentric circles with patterns on them these coffee pots are a distinct feature in the bazaars of Manama and Maharik, coffee vendors sit at every corner with some huge pots of a similar shape simmering on the embers. In the lid are introduced stones to make a noise and attract the attention of the passers-by. Coffee shops take the place of spirit and wine shops, which in the strict Wahhabi country would not be, for a moment, tolerated. In private houses it is thought well to have four or five coffee pots standing round the fire to give an appearance of riches. Besides the coffee pots, other objects of El Hasa workmanship may be seen in Bahrain. Every household of respectability has its wooden bowl with which to offer visitors a drink of water or sour milk. These are beautifully inlaid with silver in very elaborate patterns. The guns used by Bahraini sportsmen are similarly inlaid, and the camel saddles of the sheikhs are most beautifully decorated on the pommels in the same style. The anvils, at which the blacksmiths in the bazaars were squatting, were like large nails with heads about six inches square, driven into the ground and about a foot high. The old weapons of the Bedouin Arabs are still in use in Bahrain. The long lance, which is put up before the tent of the chief when he goes about, the shield of camel skin decorated with gold paint and brass knobs, the coat of mail, and other objects of warfare used in an age long gone by. Every other stall has dates to sell in thick masses, the chief food of the islanders. Then you may see locusts pressed and pickled in barrels. The poorer inhabitants are very fond of this diet, and have converted the curse of the cultivator into a favorite delicacy. As for weights, the stall-holders would appear to have none but stones, whelk-shells, and potsherds, which must be hard to regulate. An ancient Arab author states that in Oman, Men obtain fire from a spark by rolling the tinder in dry Arab grass and swinging it round till it bursts into flame. We often saw this process, and bought one of the little cages, hanging to a long chain, which they use in Bahrain. Of course, pearl fishing is the great occupation of the islands, and Manama is inhabited chiefly by pearl merchants and divers. Bahrain has in fact been celebrated for its pearl fishing ever since the days of the Periplus of Nearchus, in the time of Alexander the Great. Albuquerque, in his commentaries, beginning of footnote 1, page 164, end of footnote 1, thus speaks of Bahrain pearl fishing in 1510. Bahrain is noted for its large breeding of horses, its barley crops, and the variety of its fruits and all around it are the fishing-grounds of seed-pearls, and of pearls which are sent to these realms of Portugal, for they are better and more lasting than any that are found in any other of these parts. This is also the verdict of the modern pearl merchants, who value Bahrain pearls as more lasting and harder than those even of Ceylon, 
Evidently, Albuquerque got an order from his sovereign for pearls, for he writes, beginning of footnote 2, page 328, end of footnote 2, in 1515, that he is getting the pearls which the king had ordered for the pontifical of Our Lady. To this day in their dealings, the pearl merchants of Bahrain still make use of the old Portuguese weights and names. The pearl oyster is found in all the waters, from Rasmussendum to the head of the gulf, but on the Persian side there are no known banks of value. They vary in distance from one to ninety miles from the low-lying shore of Araby the Blessed but the deep sea banks are not so much fished till the shamal or nor'westers of june have spent their force the three seasons for fishing are known as the spring fishing in the shallow water the summer fishing in the deep waters and the winter fishing conducted principally by wading in the shoals the pearls of these seas are still celebrated for their firmness and do not peel. They are commonly reported to lose one per cent annually for fifty years in color and water, but after that they remain the same. They have seven skins, whereas the Singalese pearls have only six. The merchants generally buy them wholesale by the old Portuguese weight of the shao. They divide them into different sizes with sieves and sell them in India, so that as is usually the case with specialties, it is impossible to buy a good pearl on Bahrain. Diving here is exceedingly primitive. All the necessary paraphernalia consists of a loop of rope and a stone to go down with, a curious horn thing to hold the nose, and oil for the orifice of the ears. Once a merchant brought with him a diving apparatus, but the divers were highly indignant, and leaguing against him, refused to show the best banks in this way the fisheries suffer for the best pearls are in the deeper waters which can only be visited late in the season the divers are mostly negro slaves from africa they do not live long poor creatures developing awful sores and weak eyes and they live and die entirely without medical aid at present the pearl fisheries employ about four hundred boats of from eight to twenty men each each boat pays a tax to the sheikh the fishing season lasts from april to october very curious boats ply in the waters between manama and maharik the huge ungainly bagalas can only sail in the deeper channels the bahrain boats have very long pointed prows elegantly carved and decorated with shells when the wind is contrary, they are propelled by poles or paddles, consisting of boards of any shape tied to the end of the poles with twine, and the oarsman always seats himself on the gunwale. Perhaps the way these boats are tied and sewn together may have given rise to the legend alluded to by Sir John Mondeville when he saw them at the Isle of Hormuz. Near that isle there are ships without nails of iron or bonds, on account of the rocks of adamants, lodestones, for they are all abundant there in that sea that is marvellous to speak of, and if a ship passed there that had iron bonds or iron nails it would perish, for the adamant, by its nature, draws iron to it, and so it would draw the ship that it should never depart from it. Many of the boats have curious-shaped stone anchors and water-casks of uniform and doubtless old-world shape. The sheikh has some fine war-vessels, called batils. 
which did good execution about fifty years ago when the sultan of oman and the rulers of el hasa tried to seize bahrain and a naval battle took place in the shallow sea off the coast in which the bahraini were victorious now that the gulf is practically english and piracy at an end these vessels are more ornamental than useful his large bagala which mounted ten tiny guns and was named the dunisia is now employed in trade then there are the bamboo skiffs with decks almost flush with the side requiring great skill in working boats are really but of little use immediately around the islands you see men walking in the sea quite a mile out collecting shellfish and seaweeds which form a staple diet for both man and beast on bahrain the shallowness of the sea between Bahrain and the mainland has contributed considerably to the geographical and mercantile importance of the Bahrain. No big vessels can approach the opposite coast of Arabia. Hence, in olden days, when the caravan trade passed this way, all goods must have been transshipped to smaller boats at Bahrain. Sir M. Durant, in a consular report, states it as his opinion that under a settled government, Bahrain could be the trading place of the Persian Gulf for Persia and Arabia, and an excellent harbor near the warehouses could be formed. If the Euphrates Valley Railway had ever been opened, if the terminus of this railway had been at Kuwait, as it was proposed by the party of survey under the command of Admiral Charles Wood and General Chesney, the Bahrain group would at once have sprung into importance as offering a safe emporium in the immediate vicinity of this terminus. Bahrain is the Cyprus of the Persian Gulf, in fact. This day is, however, postponed indefinitely until such times as England, Turkey, and Russia shall see fit to settle their differences. And with a better understanding between these powers and the development of railways in the east, the Persian Gulf may yet once more become a high road of commerce, and the Bahrain Islands may again come into notice. The Portuguese, who were the first Europeans after the time of Alexander to visit the Gulf, recognized the importance of Bahrain. Up to their time the Gulf had been a closed Mohammedan lake. The history of their rule in that part has yet to be written, but it will disclose a tale of great interest, and be a record of marvelous commercial enterprise. It was Albuquerque who first reopened the Gulf to Europeans. Early in the 16th century, 1504, he urged the occupation of the Gulf. In 1506, three fleets went to the east under the command of Tristan de Cunha, with Albuquerque as second in command. Tristan soon took his departure further afield, and left Albuquerque in command. This admiral first attacked and took Hormuz, then governed by a king of Persian origin. Here, and at Muscat, he thoroughly established the Portuguese power, thereby commanding the entrance into the Gulf. From de Barros account, it would appear that the king of Bahrain was a tributary of the king of Hormuz, paying annually 40,000 perdaus, and from Albuquerque's letters we read that the occupation of Bahrain formed part of his scheme. With Hormuz and Bahrain in their hand, the whole Gulf would be under their control, he wrote. In fact, Albuquerque's scheme at that time would appear to have been exceedingly vast and rather chimerical, namely to divert the Nile from its course and let it flow into the Red Sea, ruin Egypt, and bring the Indian trade via the Persian Gulf to Europe. Of this scheme we have only the outline, but beyond establishing fortresses in the Gulf it fell through, 
for Albuquerque died, and with him his gigantic projects. The exact date of the occupation of Bahrain by the Portuguese I have as yet been unable to discover, but in 1521 we read of an Arab insurrection in Bahrain against the Persians and Portuguese, in which the Portuguese factor, Roy Bali, was tortured and crucified. Sheikh Hussein bin Said, of the Arabian tribe of bin Zabia, was the instigator of this revolt. In the following year, the Portuguese governor, Dom Luis de Menezes, came to terms with him and appointed him Portuguese representative in the island. A few years later, when Ras Berdadim, Wazil, or governor of Bahrain, made himself objectionable, and against him Simon de Cunha was sent. He and many of his men died of fever in the expedition, but the Portuguese power was again restored. Towards the close of the sixteenth century the Portuguese came under the rule of Spain, and from that date their power in the Persian Gulf began to wane. Their soldiers were drafted off to the wars in Flanders instead of going to the east to protect the colonies, and the final blow came in 1622, when Shah Abbas of Persia, assisted by an English fleet, took Hormuz and then Bahrain. Twenty years later a company of Portuguese merchants, eager for the pearls of these islands, organized an expedition from Goa to recover the Bahrain, but the ships were taken and plundered by the Arabs before ever they entered the Gulf. Thus fell the great Portuguese power in the Gulf, the sole traces of which now are the numerous fortresses, such as the one on Bahrain. From 1622 to the present time, the control over Bahrain has been contested between the Persians and the Arabs, and as the Persian power has been on the wane, the Arabian star has been in the ascendant. In 1711, the Sultan bin Saif wrested Bahrain from Persia. In 1784, the Utubi of El Hassa conquered it. They have held it ever since, despite the attempts of Sayyid Said of Oman, of the Turks and Persians, to take it from them. The Turks have, however, succeeded in driving them out of their original kingdom of El Hassa, on the mainland of Arabia opposite, and now, the Bahrain is all that it remains to them of their former extensive territories. The royal family is a numerous one, being a branch of the El Khalifa tribe. They are the chiefs of the Utubi tribe of Arabs. Most of them, if not actually belonging to that strict sect of Arabians known as Wahhabi, have strong puritanical proclivities. Our teetotalers are nothing to them in bigotry. If a vendor of intoxicating liquor started a shop on Bahrain, they would burn his house down, so that the wicked who want to drink any intoxicating liquor have to buy the material secretly from ships in the harbor. Many think it wrong to smoke and spend their lives in prayer and fasting. Church decoration is an abomination to the Wahhabi. Therefore, in Bahrain, the mosques are little better than barns with low minarets, for the very tall ones of other Mohammedan sects are forbidden. The Wahhabi are fanatics of the deepest dye. There is one God, and Muhammad is his prophet, they say with the rest of the Mohammedan world. But the followers of Abdul Wahhab add, And in no case must Muhammad and the Imams be worshipped, lest glory be detracted from God. All titles to them are odious. No grand tombs are to be erected over their dead. No mourning is allowed. Hence the cemetery at Manama is but a pitiful place. A vast collection of circles set with rough stones, each with a small uninscribed headpiece and the surface sprinkled with helix shells. 
the wahhabi would wage if they dared perpetual war not only against the infidel but against such perverted individuals as those who go to worship at mecca and other sacred shrines the founder of this revival is reported to have beaten his sons to death for drinking wine and to have made his daughters support themselves by spinning but at the same time he felt himself entitled to give to a fanatical follower who courted death for his sake an order for an emerald palace and a large number of female slaves in the world to come in eighteen sixty seven the shah of persia aimed at acquiring bahrain though his only claim to it was based on the fact that bahrain had been an appanage of the persian crown under the safafian kings he instituted a revolt on the island adopted a claimant to the sheikhdom and got him to hoist the persian flag our ships blockaded bahrain intercepted letters and obliged the rebel sheikh to quit then it was that we took the islands under our protection in eighteen seventy five the turks caused trouble and the occupation of bahrain formed part of their great scheme of conquest in arabia our ship the osprey appeared on the scene drove back the turks transported to india several sheikhs who were hostile to the english rule and placed sheikh isa or isa on the throne under british protection under which he rules happily to this day we went to see him at moharek where he holds his court in the winter time we crossed over in a small bagala and had to be poled for a great distance with our keel perpetually grating on the bottom it was like driving in a carriage on a jolting road the donkeys trotted independently across their legs quite covered with water we were glad when they came alongside and we completed our journey on their backs the courtyard of the palace which somewhat recalls the alhambra in its architecture was when we arrived crowded with arab chiefs in all manner of quaint costumes his majesty's dress was exceedingly fine he and his family are entitled to wear their camel hair bands bound round with gold thread these looked very regal over the red turban and his long black coat with his silver-studded sword by his side made him look every inch a king he is most submissive to british interests inasmuch as his immediate predecessors who did not love england were shipped off to india and still languished there in exile as he owes his throne entirely to british protection he and his family will probably continue to reign as long as the english are virtual owners of the gulf if they are willing to submit to the english protectorate we got a photograph of a group of them resting on their guns and with their kanjars or sickle-shaped daggers at their waists we took prince mohammed the heir apparent and the stout saeed bin omar the prime minister of bahrain but sheikh esau refused to place his august person within reach of our camera during our visit we were seated on high armchairs of the kind so much used in india and the only kind used here they were white and hoary with old age and long estrangement from furniture polish for our sins we had to drink the bitterest black coffee imaginable which tasted like varnish from the bitter seeds infused in it this was followed by cups of sweet syrup flavored with cinnamon a disagreeable custom to those accustomed to take their coffee and sugar together moharek is aristocratic being the seat of government manama is essentially commercial and between them in the sea is a huge dismantled portuguese fort now used as sheikh esau's stables the town of moharek gets its water supply from a curious source springing up from under the sea 
at high tide there is about a fathom of salt water over the spring and water is brought up either by divers who go down with skins or by pushing a hollow bamboo down into it at low tide there is very little water over it and women with large infora and goat skins wade out and fetch what water they require they tell me that the spring comes up with such force that it drives back the salt water and never gets impregnated all i can answer for is that the water is excellent to drink this source is called bir mahab and there are several of a similar nature on the coast around the Kasefas spring and others there is such a spring in the harbor of syracuse about twenty feet under the sea the legend is that in the time of merwan a chief ibn hakim from katif wished to marry the lovely daughter of a bahrain chief his suit was not acceptable so he made war on the islands and captured all the wells which supplied the towns on the bigger island but the guardian deity of the bahraini caused this spring to break out in the sea just before maharic and the invader was thus in time repulsed it is a curious fact that arados or arvad the phoenician town on the mediterranean was supplied by a similar submarine source sheikh esau's representative at manama his prime minister or viceroy we should call him though he is usually known there by the humble sounding title of the bazaar master by name said bin omar is a very stout and nearly black individual with a european cast of countenance he looked exceedingly grand when he came to see us in his under robe of scarlet cloth with a cloak of rustling and stiff white wool with a little red woven into it over his head floated a white cashmere shawl with the usual camel hair rings to keep it on and sandals on his bare feet he was deputed by his sovereign to look after us and during the fortnight we were on the island he never left us for a single day though outwardly very strict in his asceticism and constantly apt to say his prayers with his nose in the dust at inconvenient moments we found him by no means averse to a cigarette in the strictest privacy and we learnt that his private life would not bear european investigation he is constantly getting married though sixty years of age he had a young bride of a few weeks standing i was assured that he would soon tire of her and put her away even in polygamous arabia he is looked upon as a much-married man. End of chapter 1. Southern Arabia